So, okay, so here we go. Um, we continue in our sermon series, and um, we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. And once again, remind you, know, they're not actually, they weren't originally called the Ten Commandments. They're actually called the Ten Words because they're actually spoken first. You go back and look at the Bible. And they were, Jesus, God spoke them, and they came rolling down the side of the mountain. And of course, then um, they were written down on tablets. Moses received them. He's up there on four, for 40 days. And so then finally God says to Moses, Moses, if you ever get down there, all, all heck is breaking loose down at the bottom of the mountain. You've got to go do something right? And Moses is kind of, well, he's actually very miffed. He ends up breaking the Ten Commandments. So we're on number seven today. And so, uh, you know, once again, remind you, remember the first four have to do with the relationship with God. The six, next six have to do with the relationship with each other about our neighbor. And once again, you got the whole package there. Remind you, well, the greatest command, to love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. It's all right there in Ten Commandments. It's amazing. So we have um, number seven is thou shall not commit adultery. And then you're all thinking, okay, what are you going to do with that one today, Harold? Okay. <laughs> so let's start with this. And, and so I'm going to give you a little definition that I, I think it's actually, let me give you, um, let me give you the, a quote, uh, a beautiful, uh, actually it's a, from a poem from, uh, actually it was a 17th century poet from, and it's called, um, from Alexander Pope, The Universal Prayer. He says, teach me to feel another's woe, to hide the fault I see, that mercy I to others show, that mercy show to me. And so let me just throw my first word at you today, and the word is mercy. And um, so I looked up the definition for mercy, and compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. And you know, I started reflecting upon this word this week, and once again, you think about the life and times of Jesus, and Jesus was always showing mercy. And he showed it in several different ways. He showed it in um, showing mercy and compassion towards people who are physically afflicted in life. Uh, he showed it in another dimension from a spiritual standpoint because he was always pointing people towards a better life and their relationship with God. And then there's the third point, which Jesus was always pointing people towards a mercy, towards everlasting life. So we actually have three different tiers about physical life, spiritual life, and everlasting life. Jesus was always teaching and fulfilling and living out mercy. So, um, true story, you know, a few weeks ago, as I mentioned, I was out, out in Utah visiting and um, hiking all around, and we went to several national parks, and we were doing some things we never had done before, and we went to a place called Corona Arch. As a matter of fact, I got a picture of the Corona Arch. There's a picture of me and my four sons, and you, there's the arch. It's called Corona Arch, and the reason why this one has to be is fairly famous is because up until maybe a few years, a couple of years ago, uh, people were actually bungee jumping off of that. Now, listen, it takes a lot of guts to do that. I have no idea how they did. I don't even know how they got up there, but evidently you can actually see where their cords were actually wrapped up there at one point. People were bungee jumping off that. So what was interesting about that particular day, it was really hot, you know, in the, out in the west of the last, this summer, it's been I just one of the hottest ever on record. And matter of fact, the day that we were at this particular uh, place, I think it was probably about 100, 110, 115 degrees. And so, and it's one of those hikes that you actually have to be very careful because if you aren't prepared, man, I tell you what, it'll get you. Um, the elements will actually get you. And so it was hot and we had a lot of water and we went up. It was about a two mile hike up there and about two mile, obviously two back to the, get to the uh, trailhead back to the car. And so we went up there and we had a nice time, but, um, and then we were making our way back. 
And all of a sudden, as we were getting closer back towards the parking lot, we saw all this kind of commotion on the trail. And um, there was a lady, evidently, who had collapsed on the trail. And guess what? From heat exhaustion. And she was headed towards heat stroke, right? And um, so there, were, uh, there was a group of people. Actually, I saw one park ranger there. It evidently had just happened maybe, maybe a few minutes before. And there were a, a group of people. I don't, know who the, I don't know who the lady was. I don't know who the people who were gathered around her, if they were friends or family or just people who were hiking like all of us on that particular day. But they literally, somebody had found an umbrella. They had that over her. They were pouring water on her. They were putting, they had uh, dripping their water, uh, drip, uh, wa putting water in garments and wrapping it around her neck and trying to cool her body down because she was headed towards heat stroke. And let me tell you something. If there wouldn't have been for people on that trail that day, that lady would have died. And I thought what's very powerful about that is that, you know, mercy is such an important quality to show to people throughout life. I mean, there's so much judgmentalism and condemnation in life but mercy, it's such a beautiful grace gift. And so these people, I don't know if they were all just kind of good Samaritans or what, but what we find here is there are people who are showing mercy to this lady. And I'm sure I tell you, she would have died. So I have that, well, I have that picture. And, um, and, I, and then I have another picture. And once again, um, can, you go that, can you go to that next picture? And this is a little different place. This is actually, well, let me read the beginning of the story. And you all are familiar with it. I've actually preached on this story. But this is, we find it in the Gospel of Luke, the 17th chapter. On their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going along through the region of between Samaria and Galilee. He entered a village, 10 lepers approached him, keeping their distance, and they called out saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 10 lepers. You all know the story, right? I mean, there they were. They were on that trail. Can you put that picture back up? Can you imagine being on that trail? It's hot, you know, and they're, they're going towards their village, and there's the train, and this is, you know, once again, the other trail that I was on this last couple of weeks ago, it could just, just as well have been what I would call a mercy trail because people extend mercy. And so nearly 2,000 years ago, there was 10 lepers. They were on a, well, they were on a different trail. They weren't in Utah, but they were making this way down towards, well, towards Jerusalem and Samaria. And what did Jesus do? He showed mercy. And so, of course, there's that part of the story. I mean, the whole story really begins and ends really with Jesus showing mercy to all 10 of them. But as you recall, that particular story is that, that story, the caveat on that story is that Jesus says there was only one that came back and said, thank you. And the other nine were ungrateful. Well, they were happy that they had been, well, relieved and God had actually, or Jesus had showed mercy to them, but they didn't have enough, well, decency to just come back and say, thank you. And so what I think, once again, it reminds us when we think about that story is that Jesus is always showing mercy, mercy to people physically, people showing mercy spiritually, showing people mercy towards eternal life, mercy. Over and over again, there's these different levels of Jesus as he continues to exemplify compassion and love towards other people. So um, then we, let me throw the second word at you today on my message. So we get the word mercy, mercy, compassion, or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Here's the second word is the word maybe. And the definition for maybe is a mere possibility or probability. The adverb is perhaps or possibly. 
Okay, so once again, you have this other story. We have the, this story, once upon a time, there was a guy, once a guy, they were, well, as Jesus says, there was a man who was making his road down towards Jericho. It was almost very similar to that picture just a few minutes ago I showed up there. And so, as I love this story. It's a story that Jesus tells. And when I think it's very powerful, I think, once, by the way, it's probably one of the greatest, top two greatest stories ever told. So Jesus is drawn upon probably a true life experience. Maybe he heard something like this, or maybe he witnessed himself, but he's drawn upon this. So there's once upon a time, Jesus talks, and he's talking to someone, and he says, you know, who, uh, who's my neighbor? And Jesus, well, let me just tell you a story. Once upon a time, there's a man who's making his way down from Jericho, and he comes upon thieves, and he's beaten and left to dead. And so there's this one guy who's a Levi, um, well, he's a priest, and the priest, well, and I call it the word, he has to contemplate the word maybe, doesn't he? Maybe I help him, maybe I don't. And if I don't, I'm showing cruelty. But if I do, I'm showing mercy. Ooh. What's the priest do? Passes by the other side. There's another man that comes along who, once again, he's kind of a, a religious official. He's a Levite. He comes by and he, once again, it's the moment of maybe, isn't it? Maybe I help him. Maybe I don't. Maybe I show mercy. Maybe I show cruelty by not helping him. Passes by the other side. But by golly, there is this Samaritan, a Samaritan of all people, who contemplates the same exact word, maybe. And all of a sudden, out of all the people who could have helped him, who ends up, well, the one who ends up being the hero of the story is the Good Samaritan. Maybe. And then, you know what? I think life is full of maybes in life, isn't it? Maybe the idea of mere possibilities, probability, the adverb context is perhaps or possibly could be happening. And we look at the story today, you know, we've been talking about the Ten Commandments. And I, I love this part of the, of, the, of the story about, you know, um, when God hooks up with Moses, um, I mean, this is the, the whole Ten Commandments story. The God leading the children out of bondage. It is a story of mercy, isn't it? I mean, well, if you don't really trust me on that, let me just read the beginning of the story because we find it here in the book of Exodus um, and we find it here, which is very powerful because it's in the sec second chapter, the seventh verse. So then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. They're miserable. I've heard their cry on the account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and a whole bunch of other Amamites, right? Did you get that? God saw that they were miserable, misery, misery. God says, I, I, can, I can do something about that. And, and so, what I, so what I love about this part of the story is that God sees their misery and he shows mercy. But I also see that out of all the people he uses, he uses, well, he uses Moses as an agent of, to alleviate misery. And what I, I thought was interesting, because I didn't teach you this last week, is I, I meant to talk about this, but I, I didn't mention it. But So let me come back to this week. You know, um, last week we talked about thou shalt not kill, number six. What's very powerful about that is, you know, 
when God said, um, thou shalt not kill, I wonder if maybe Moses was shaking a little bit in his boots. Because Moses has already brought, broken that one, right? And just a thought, I had never thought about this until this last week and I read something that was actually very profound. I, I wonder how life would have been different maybe if Moses had not killed that guy that day. I mean, of course, that's part of the story. You know, he sees, the, a, a, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster who is beating one of the Hebrew slaves and the Bible says that Moses just couldn't stand anymore. His anger raids and he rises up and he kills the guy and the, someone sees him and they rat him out. And so then what happens to Moses? He goes from the prince of Egypt and he has to flee for his life. So he spends the next 40 years of his life just, well, he's a very highly educated, highly educated shepherd for 40 years. And just a thought, I wonder if on that particular day, instead of Moses killing that guy, I wonder if he could have just maybe roughed him up a little bit and spent the next 40 years working towards reforming Egypt. I mean, he did have the power, right? I mean, he, he had a lot of power. But it didn't go down that way. The anger got the best of him. He killed a guy. And so in the midst of the story, once again, we find that how God sees the plight of the, Egyptian, or the, the Israelite people and he shows mercy, he shows compassion. Um, and then we have this agent, Moses, that God uses as a catalyst to set the people free. So, well, I, you know, I, I think about um, this part of the story. Um, I started having a reflection about that. Somehow in my message, my sermon preparation, I kept coming back to the, you know, this is a place where Moses has like his back against the wall. Of course, his back is against the wall because he goes and kills this guy and he has to leave, right? But there are other times in the story that Moses is back against the wall. By the way, I, once again, I have my little staff here today. It's my visual aid and I, I really like this little staff. And so, you know, I didn't get a chance to do this last week, but you know, what's interesting because you remember how Moses has a staff and he puts more faith in his staff than he actually in God. I mean, he, God says, hey, what's in your hand? And he says, well, I got a staff. And he says, well, go and stretch it out. And he stretches it out and throws it on the ground. Guess what it becomes? A snake, right? And then once again, he goes and takes the, takes the staff and he puts it in the Nile. And what happens to the Nile? And that turns to the blood. And, and so over and over again, Moses continues to kind of depend on his staff. And he comes to that point in the stories I shared with you all last week. And God says, speak to the rock. And Moses doesn't speak to the rock. He takes his staff and strikes the rock and water comes gushing out. Everything's great except God says, uh-oh, you didn't trust me. You put more faith in the stick than in me. And you know, once again, what happens in the story? You know, I love this part. Let me give you once again, the, the children of Israel have been let out. They're, they're finally away and the, everything looks great except all of a sudden they're back against the wall. Against they, they're up against the Red Sea and then all of a sudden Pharaoh's heart's hard and they come after him. Pharaoh and his, all his chariots are coming bearing down and there's this great line that God gives us in the, here in the Bible and this is what it says, but Moses answered. Moses told his people, because they're all thinking they're gonna die because Moses, I mean, that Pharaoh, is going to come back and get them. He says, hey, don't be afraid. Don't run away. Stand where you are and watch the Lord, Yahweh, all capital letters, the one who sustains us, the one who's the author of everlasting life, save us today. I love that. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Watch what God is going to do. He's going to deliver us today. Man, that is great stuff, isn't it? 
And so one of the things I didn't get a chance to do last week is my, my, my best Charlton Heston impersonation of taking the staff and putting it over the Red Sea. I've always wanted to do that with a real stick. This makes me feel so empowered today, right? And so God, so Moses takes his staff, puts it over the Red Sea, parts the sea, and the children of Israel are all delivered once again, right? Back against the wall. Haven't there been times in our lives that we all have had our back against the wall? You know what's interesting? I was trying to think about current events, about things, about applying to the scripture today. Because by the way, once again, once again, don't miss the detail. Six, what comes after six? Seven. What's six in the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not kill. What's number seven? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Oh, wait a minute. What's that about? Thou shalt not kill. And immediately following... Thou shalt not commit adultery, which tells us that this is really important business, God says. Because he puts one right after the other. I started thinking, well, okay, we're in current life where I have seen this whole thing about, oh, wait a minute, here it is, it's a TV show. It's called Dateline. I don't know if you've ever seen Dateline, but let me tell you a little bit about Dateline. There are basically three components to Dateline, and my wife and I probably watch every single episode of Dateline. Here are the components. Usually this is what happens. Somebody is fooling around and messing around, and there's adultery going on. Second component, somebody ends up dead. And the third component is somebody is trying to collect on the insurance policy. That's it. You can see it over and over and over again. Those three components. Somebody infidelity, somebody ends up dead, and somebody trying to collect on insurance. And it has to do with greed. So we see this pattern over and over again. And so it's a reality in life, right? And so I think it's very interesting as you think about this, as God gives us, when he gives us six and he gives us seven, but... I mean, God realized how important this is because he sees the fra how fragile life really can be. I also think it's very interesting because out of all the different analogies that God uses in the Old Testament about um, how his relationship with the children of Israel, do you, I don't know if you realize this. You know already? It's unfaithfulness. Matter of fact, it's prophetic. Uh, uh, Jeremiah, the fifth chapter, listen to these words. So God says, people of Judah, why should I forgive you? Your children have abandoned me. They have made promises to idols that are not really God's. I gave your children everything they needed, but they were still unfaithful to me. They spent their time with prostitutes. Oh, Wow. So out of all the different illustrations and analogies that God uses in the Old Testament, we find this pattern, once again, of the children of Israel being unfaithful and it has to do with infidelity. Very powerful image, isn't it? So what's very interesting about this, this, this text today, you know, six, thou shalt not kill. Number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, the, the, the Old Testament, of course, is a patriarch society, right? It's, it's a male-dominant culture. And so we find a lot of that uh, reflected in the scripture. But what's very powerful, you go back to the creation story. Of course, there's two creation stories, but the first original creation story, and this is how it begins. So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them, and he created them male and female. But you know what's very interesting about that? It has nothing to do with a male-dominant culture. 
it has everything to do with partnership. So when you think about, when, the, when, when we look at the story about infidelity, um, you know, it's very interesting because if you go back and look at the Davidical code, it has usually, it favors the males rather than the females. But then Jesus comes along, I'm gonna teach in just a second. He takes that and turns it all upside down. So what I love about this text, and when you go back to the original context of the, of the Old Testament, the creation story, it's not about one, the male being dominant over the female. It has everything to do with a cooperative partnership and a relationship with each other. So, you know, I totally understand this. I mean, that's how, you know, my wife and I have tried to live our lives that way in our marriage. Matter of fact, my wife reminds me that I have these wonderful refrigerator magnets on my, on my refrigerator that remind me, Lord, put your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. I've got that one. And then, the, of course, the, my most famous one, I've shared this with you before, marriage is a relationship where one person is always right and the other one is the husband. <laughs> right? And, and so, this is... Our partnership, right? <laughs> so we look at the story. Now, what I do love about the Old Testament, and the, we go back to the original creation story about partnership, it's not a male, it's, it, you look at the hierarchy, it favors the, actually the male, but the very creation story, it's not that way at all. So let me just tell you a quick story. Uh, you know, it, you know I, I gave you the whole, I started thinking about, okay, Dateline. Okay, got Dateline. But do you realize that Dateline is actually in the Bible? I mean, you know, uh, God must have watched a lot of Dateline. Because here's the story. You all know the story. Once upon a time, there's a, well, there's a man after God's own heart. His name was David. God loved David. So David, you know, once again, um, think about the power of David and how he would have known the Ten Commandments and how he would have known the, the power of Moses' voice. Hey, listen, don't fear. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Watch how God's going to deliver us today. I mean, aren't these words that maybe could have echoed when, when David stands in front of the Goliath? Think about that. And how God had continued to bless him, bless him over and over again. So one day he's standing in his palace and he's, matter of fact, I got a picture. I love this picture. I found this on, on the internet. So there's a picture of David overlooking. Matter of fact, they archeological, they actually have excavated and they think that, you know, they have found David's palace and it was, of course, it was the biggest of all and they would, he would be able to be towering over all the other buildings. So there literally, if you look at the text, he was looking down and as he's looking down across his kingdom, he sees this beautiful young woman. Her name is Bathsheba and she's, she's bathing. And so once again, it's that, once again, it's that word maybe, isn't it? About what could or couldn't be. I, I, I really appreciate that word maybe because, you know, Walter Rangerin, who's a great Christian author, he says, he calls the, the moment a maybe. He says, the moment maybe either you can shut the door or open the door to the desire or thought, and the desire and thought can either lead to action or movement. And he says, hey, guess what? Once you start playing around with maybe, it's only a short walk to yes. So what did David do? He starts messing around with maybe. And he becomes obsessed with Bathsheba. And he could have shut it all off right there, but he didn't. So then in one thing, if you look at the story, and you all know the story from Sunday school, right? He, he starts obsessing about it, and he, can, he can't just shut her out. He just, and he finally he turns to his servant and says, hey, listen, go get her. Now listen, let me tell you something. 
The word, if you go back and look at the original context of that story, it says the word taken. Now listen, you all might watch Hollywood's versions and you might like, oh, well, Bathsheba was spitten because the king really wanted her and, and so she falls to the temptation and David seduces her, but it seems to be somewhat of a, you know, she's being submissive and, you know, I'm uh, kind of maybe in awe that the king is showing much, so much attention to her. But you know, you know what? Maybe not so much. The word there's taken, which means maybe the whole thing is really not consensual. By the way, do you realize that David, just a thought, David probably is in his 50s. How old is Bathsheba? Probably in her late teens. Oh, that throws a whole different perspective on it, doesn't it? Oh, wow, okay. By the way, Bathsheba probably had never had any children before. It shows how old she was, right? doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that she had already given birth to any of their children. So David goes and gets her and seduces her, has sexual relations with her, didn't he think anything of it until, well, about a month later, Bathsheba says, oh, by the way, king, I'm carrying your child. Uh-oh, uh-oh. And so then David, once again, he has to cover his tracks, right? I mean, this thing, I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, sexual relations. It's another thing to, now I've got a real problem. Everybody's gonna know what I've done. It was a secret, but now everybody's going to know what I've done. Because Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, is nowhere to be found. The reason why he's nowhere to be found because he's fighting for David. It's springtime. He sends the soldiers off. But you know what's interesting about the story? This is the one time that David doesn't go off with the soldiers, which means maybe David's starting to get, as my day would say, a little bit too big for his britches. A little entitled. So he ends up, you know, once again, this is Dateline, isn't it? He ends up putting Uriah on the front lines. He tells his commander to put him in the heat of battle, pull back the forces to make sure that Uriah is killed. And the plan works perfectly. And oh, what a great guy David is. What does David do? He goes and says, you know what? Poor old Bathsheba, she's now a widow. I will take her in as my own. What a guy. I told you this is Dateline. I mean, he has all that whole thing about infidelity, right? Murder. And yet, what's amazing about the story is that God still showed mercy on David's soul. So Jesus takes this, you know, this, this, uh, this seventh command. You got six, thou shalt not kill. And number seven, thou shalt commit adultery. And then Jesus gives, once again, he gives us this on the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, it's the greatest sermon ever preached. And this is Jesus's words on adultery. He says, you know, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in, in his own heart. I mean, he's already, he's already crossed over the maybe. He, he's got the, I mean, Jesus understood maybe. Let's be real clear about it. He understood how maybe could lead to one thing, you can shut it on or you can, you can either turn it on or you can turn it off, you know? And next thing you know, you keep messing with maybe, it turns into a yes. So Jesus really understood and reflected upon how maybe can change people's lives and lead a lot of carnage and pain in his wake. Jesus got that. And he says to all of us today, you think, oh, well, you know, Harold's talking about the seventh command. You know, I've never have had an affair. I, you know, that's not me. But then Jesus takes this whole thing to another level, doesn't he? And, and then he says, 
And he says, hey, you know what? If your right eye causes, right after this, it's the next verse. So he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body for, than for your whole body to go to hell. Oh, wow. Jesus. Now, did he really mean that? Well, we call this prophetic hyperbole. Prophetic means refers to a bold statement about what God is or is not, and it's a part of God's will for our lives, right? So we got the prophetic part, what's really truly part of what God's will in life, and hyperbole is an exaggeration. So what this whole thing is really all about, what Jesus is getting at is he wants us to understand the magnitude of cross and line of maybe. It's a whole nother level. So then I started thinking about, you know, you know, what's another one that is kind of a current event that's happened in people and our society over the last like 10, 15 years. And I thought, you know, I mean, I, I started thinking about Tiger Woods. Okay, so Tiger Woods is a, a guy who has, you know, he's got about, about a billion dollars in a bank account. He has, he has a, had a, a beautiful supermodel wife, two beautiful children. And yet, you know what? He blew it. Now, listen, it's one thing to blow it and you have infidelity. And maybe you keep that all in your family. But it's another thing when everybody knows. I mean, the whole world knows. It's just plastered out there, right? Then I started thinking, you know what? I mean, there were a lot of people, you know, throwing Tiger Woods under the bus. Is, you know, what a bad person he is. I mean, everything he did, it was, it was bad. But then I started thinking this last week as I was kind of thinking of contemporary illustrations. But Harold, who are you to throw the first stone? I mean, sin, sin. I mean, there's so much condemnation, so much judgmentalism, and yet... The world needs more compassion and mercy. Um, and once again, I, I close with this, you know. So, um, so once upon a time, uh, there's this, um, uh, this woman who is, once again, I love this part. So we got the Old Testament, you got the command, you got the Moses story, and then you got Jesus teaching and the Sermon on the Mount, and then you got the real life experience. So this woman's caught in adultery. Okay, and once again, the patriarch society always favors the man. So then they bring the woman in in front of everybody so everybody knows. I mean, she's all dirty and disheveled, throw her down on the ground, her hair's all matted. I mean, they actually, I mean, you've got some peeping Tom Pharisees, right? They catch her right and they act. By the way, I don't know where the guy is, but they bring the woman in. And then they ask Jesus this question. Jesus, you know what the law says? We're supposed to stone her. And then, but what do you say? And then Jesus does this amazing thing. I love this part. This is so typical of Jesus. He just blows everything out of the water. Jesus goes and he kneels down. And he starts doodling in the, in the sand. I mean, who does that? But Jesus, he starts doodling. And St. Jerome, like the second, third, fourth century Christian writer, he said that what Jesus was writing down in the ground was 
the sins of all those who are ready to condemn the woman, like thief, and he looks up at that guy. Adultery, he looks up at that guy. You know, all these different sins of people, and he looks up at him, doesn't say a word. Then he gets up, and then he says, well, ye without sin, cast the first stone. Silence. And then what did Jesus do? He goes back to doodling. (laughs) This is classic Jesus, isn't it? And then the Bible says, as he's doodling, the Bible says, well, the ones here brought him one by one, beginning with, don't miss the detail, the eldest, maybe because maybe they had the most sin. They start dropping their their stones one by one. Plop, 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 plop. And then after all the plopping, all the rocks are dropped and they all left. Jesus stands back up and looks at the woman and says, woman, who's left to condemn you? And then she says, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says, well, neither do I. But then he gives it a caveat. But go and sin no more. Wow. All right, so you get this? So Jesus is showing mercy physically, spiritually, and pointing her towards eternal life. What a great story. So this story today, I share with you the seventh command. Of course, it is thou shalt not commit adultery, but there's so much deeper level to it. It's about, really, in the eyes of Jesus, it's about two things. And they all apply to you and me. Mercy and messing with the maybe. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for your love and your grace and for your unconditional love. And we're thankful, Lord, that you continue to teach us. We're grateful for the Old Testament, but we're also so grateful how you breathe life, new life and a new perspective through your word. So help us, Lord, as we continue to live into your teaching and apply your teaching to the wholeness of our life. And I praise you and we love you, Lord. Help us can bring, continue to bring healing and mercy physically, healing and mercy spiritually, and healing and mercy as you teach us about the power of the transformation of everlasting life. For Lord, we want to be with you forever. In Jesus Christ, we pray and all God's children said, amen.